Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and today is March the 14th in the year 2021. If you go to armchairsurvivalist.com, which is my uh, my radio show website, scroll down and it'll tell you all the different ways to listen. That's armchairsurvivalist.com. I am on every podcast venue known to man, uh, everywhere from Stitcher to Anchor, YouTube, iHeartRadio, Pandora, they're, they're all there. And you can listen on Global Star 3 Satellite. I have a 24-7 live feed right there. You can listen to my chat room. Go to armchairsurvivalist.com, and at the top of the page, you will say, listen to my show live Sunday in the chat room. Click on it, and you're there. And you can chat if you want, or just go there and listen. Uh, and by the way, I have a couple different players on that page, because Flash is no longer allowed uh, programming-wise on the internet, so that was the original player. So I have two different players. If one works, great. Uh, one of them or the other will work. You just have to play with it and figure it out yourself. You can listen on your phone. It's not toll-free, but it's 641-741-0371. Now, if that number isn't active, it'll actually give you an intercept and say, well, call this other number, Okay. But it's 641-741-0371. If you miss the show and you want to hear the latest show, like say it's Monday and you go to the website and go, oh crap, he was on Sunday. Well, there's a there's a link there at the top. It says, listen 24 hours a day to the recent show of the Armchair Survivalist. Click here. Do that. And whoa, look at that. There's the recent show. If you want to download my show and I post all the current shows for the year, it's on the left-hand side armchairsurvivalist.com left hand side you see the little white nipper dog listening to the RCA Victor gramophone you click on that it'll take you to a page that says past shows figure out which one you want it tells you there how to save it download it or just play it straight from there now survival enterprises is my company so let's get some news out of the way on the company Let's see. We have ham radios and shortwave radios available now. I don't have them on the website yet. I'm going to have to revamp the whole website. See, everything changed this year. Things that we've been selling for 30 years, we can't get anymore, and we're getting some new things. Well, we're getting some things back. First off, just to let you know, my ham radios, they're handheld portables, $50 or $75. It's not as if I can call up a wholesaler and say, send me a dozen of these so I can sell them to my customers. No, i got to find them. So it's really difficult. I can't promise you anything's going to be in stock, but I got them right now. And we have the the world-famous Voyager shortwave AM-FM NOAA radio band, uh, crank charging, solar panel charging. There's all kinds of different things. This thing does everything, including scratch your back. It's got a a, a separate 21-foot antenna that comes with the kit. Anyway, that's all there. You can contact us. And we'd be glad to explain anything to you at 800-753-1981. That's 800-753-1981. Give us a call. Uh, The phones are manned till about 8 o'clock, seven days a week. And if we don't pick it up, you can leave a message. By the way, we have been, for many years, until about seven years ago, we were the second largest emergency food supplier in the United States. And then the uh, manufacturers all decided they can go right directly to the public and save a lot of money. Well, things have changed now. We, we closed all the, all the food sales down because of that, because we weren't making any money. Now Mountain House has contacted us, and we're going to start carrying Mountain House freeze-dried, packaged 
foil packaged foods in buckets. I don't know which exact buckets we're going to get, but this bucket is going to have like five days, seven days. I don't know. It's going to have a bunch of stuff in it. And this stuff, I guarantee you, these things store for 50 years. I know this for a fact. I was involved with an experiment with Mountain House in testing their old products, and they were just as good from the 70s, just as fresh and good as the as today once they opened them up so we're going to be getting some mountain house bucket foods in and i've contacted dalton dalton water purifiers these are the this is the company from england Uh, these aren't the local guys who've been screwing around for years these are the original these are from ferry industries they do the Dalton water purifiers. I'll be getting some of those in, and I'm going to start carrying the Dalton water purifiers and the replacement filters as well starting next week. All right, so we got that out of the way. Now we're going directly into the economy. There was this operation that the abomination created called Operation Choke Point, and my company got caught in it. And what it is is a, a rule that was created by the abomination, and it said uh, to banks... Conduct risk assessment of individual customers rather than make broad-based decisions affecting whole categories or classes of customers when providing access to services, capital, and credit. Now, that sounds innocuous enough, doesn't it? Sounds like it should be, logically, instead of saying all everybody who sells widgets can't get a bank account. Well, that, except what was happening under Operation Choke Point was then these, these communists could look around and say, I don't want him to have a bank account, or I don't want him to be able to take credit cards because I don't like his politics. That's what Survival Enterprises got nailed under because we, all of a sudden, couldn't take credit cards anymore. And when Dim Dimwit took office, magically got a phone call the next day, said, hey, uh, you want to take credit cards again? Yeah, so we're Survival Enterprises taking credit cards again. But this is called Operation Choke Point. Now, I have links to everything I talk about so that you guys, if you want to, can go and verify what I'm saying and read more in depth on it. You go to armchairsurvivalist.com. On the left-hand side, you'll see a link that says show notes. Click on that. That'll take you to a page that lists all my current shows. When I say current, I mean the current year. In chronological order. And you just pick the title of the one you want to find out or the date. And click on that, and that'll take you to that show's individual page. And that has all the things things uh, listed. Okay, so this thing about Operation Choke Point, it's now called cancel culture. It's, it's where whole groups of people are losing their ability to take credit cards, take PayPal, have bank accounts. And this, uh, this, this was legalized under the abomination. So Dimwit signed a bill that they called it the COVID relief bill, which is like 6% of it went to COVID relief. In other words, uh, how can we buy more, more voters? And this is what that is. It's out of the $2 trillion COVID relief bill. Tucked within its 628 pages, a $60 billion in tax increases directed at businesses and business owners. You got that? These are the people that create the jobs. One of the things in this tax, this tax thing Limits the amount of losses people can claim on their personal income taxes. Limits the amount of losses on their personal income taxes to $500,000. What does that mean? Now, that's to businesses like mine that's not a corporation. And losing $500, 
that that can happen with a fire or that can happen expenses that's expenses that's uh you know somebody steals a truck two or three trucks or does all kinds of problems so there's more to it i'm not going to read the whole thing but there's about 60 billion dollars there of tax increases that are going to be hitting small businesses now have you noticed in your city and i just noticed this about a month ago a couple of the big gas stations that shut down Safeway shut down the mobile station. And, and there's more. And I'm driving around and I see these gas stations, fences all around them. And it turns out what they're trying to do, and this is the, the Climate Act Division, is uh, they're stopping manuf- building new gas stations because they don't want you driving gas-operated vehicles anyway. And they're using every excuse under the sun to cancel licenses of existing gas stations. You just watch. You watch what, what's going on. This is just the beginning of it. Now, I got a notice last week that hackers had broken. Hackers are really going crazy now, and they're really getting dramatic. They broke into a company that deals with security cameras. These are not lightweight security cameras. These are... Oh, Tesla uses them, schools, hospitals, prisons, thousands of other organizations. These aren't the things you buy on eBay. These are high-quality, high-quality security cameras, and they were created by Verkada, I think that's it. So these cameras are all over the world, and hackers have access to them, as far as I know, to this day. Can you imagine? There's programs you can go... Uh, a get and there's also websites you can go to that will allow you to view uh, security cameras all over the world. And, and once you, if you ever get the secret password, you can see you can see the personal ones. But there's some there's some strange things getting hacked now, and there's strange things happening in France. The largest data center in France burns down. Now most people go, well, what is, what big deal? So it's a data center. Is it? Okay, this took millions of websites offline. This data center is connected to Dominion voting machines and their servers were included in this data center. This is millions of dollars worth of equipment and data that has just now disappeared. This is big. This place is twice the size of GoDaddy which is a, a company in the United States that registers uh, domains and hosts domains. This is a big thing. We'll see what comes from this, if anything does. Now, remember, I mentioned, uh, oh, about a month and a half ago, how Los Angeles mandated that all businesses with an ex- a certain amount of employees start giving them a hero pay. All right, that's an extra five dollars an hour. See, the communists want everybody to get some arbitrary number per hour, fifteen dollars per hour. Well, if you don't, they're going to find out. They're going to figure out different ways that they can covertly force you to pay fifteen dollars an hour. So they now, no matter what these people were making, you're ordered in California, ordered to give them an extra five dollars an hour. Well, Kroger was closing three stores in the Los Angeles area. Kroger's, Fred Meyer, uh, there's big grocery stores. 
they're uh, closed. They, they they closed two of them right off the bat. Then a third one, and now news came out they're closing three more stores. This is this is this is what happens when the communists get in charge of the the free enterprise system. They just uh, automatically screw it up and destroy everyone's lives. Well, that's the intent, right? The government wants you to have no income so that they can keep you under their thumb and make sure you vote for them. Because if you don't vote for them, then you're not going to get that extra $300 a week in your unemployment because, well, the Republicans are evil. They wouldn't give you free money just so you can sit on your butt at home and not work. You know, my company, we deal in a lot of nutritional products, special formulations on a lot of our products. The company that does the formulations, we're contacted by them this morning and uh, via email and we're told, look, some of the stuff that you've been getting for 20 years, we're not going to be able to do because we can't get people to go to work for us. They'd rather stay home and make make uh, almost $1,000 a week. So this is affecting everyone. Okay, now we're going to go into the food and health department. First, we're going to go into the health department. You know, when, they're, when you're doing the... Uh, PCR tests, the, the, the government tests on whether or not you have a disease, this, this, this uh, disease, this COVID thing. Well, there's a company funded by, guess who? Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's called BGI Genomics. They're linked directly to the Communist Chinese Party. And they have been mining the DNA of Americans. So this company does PCR tests, you know, swab, you drive up. They stick this thing up your nose and then uh, put it in a tube and send it off. Well, that, that data is going to communist China. Your DNA is being collected. All of you who were foolish enough to get a test, your DNA is now in the hands of government agencies. Not just the United States government, but Chinese. In fact, China now is issuing the world-first COVID vaccine passport. You can see this coming. It's that you're not going to be able to go anywhere, do anything, buy anything, go to work. Literally, go to work unless you have a COVID vaccine passport. This is all planned out. This is this whole thing was planned out. And you're going to end up having to prove that you've had the shot. Speaking of the shot... It's obviously not a vaccine. Look up the definition of the word vaccine in the dictionary. This is an emergency use authorization unit, not even approved by the FDA, because they haven't gone through FDA testing. This is a genetic manipulation. And so far in the United States, and this is just an update to the, uh, to the CDC website, 1,500 people have died by getting one of these vaccines. 31,000 have been injured, the majority on a permanent basis. We have people who have called us up and said, yeah, I got the vaccine, and now uh, my left arm from the shoulder to my wrist is swollen twice the size, I can't move it, and they say there's nothing they can do about it, and I'll have it the rest of my life. Another lady went blind in her left eye. This is forever. Now, here's the thing. Your insurance, your insurance is not going to pay for this. Your insurance would pay if uh, you got a drug from a doctor that went wrong. This isn't a drug. 
None of these are drugs. These are emergency use authorization. EUAs. In other words, they're experiments. And your insurance is not going to pay for an experimental death, an experimental uh, loss of limbs, loss of life. So they're not going to pay for it. So you're screwed. If you're, if you're stupid enough to get this shot, and there's no, there is no, if you don't get it, you can't work here. You can sue them for that because it's illegal for anyone to tell you you have to have this shot. Now let's see what the communists go to do with that and where they're going to go with that. I, I, I have no idea. Well, now we're going to get into the food. I saw this and I thought, well, it must be a Democrat in charge. Products are now showing up on shelves in stores with a little tag that says product of black-owned company, product of Latino-owned company, product of Asian-owned company. You don't see product of white-owned company, but you see product of everything else. Now, I I don't know. I think what they're trying to do is make it so nobody buys anything unless they're from a white-owned company. Maybe is that what they're doing? I, I don't know. But it's insane. But then again, communists are insane. And the funny part is, they think they're not. And I've talked about this aspect, this psychological aspect of being insane, but no, I'm not insane. Somebody who's not insane also is the Ice Age farmer, and he has an update and a warning. Joseph Stalin would be proud of the Rockefeller Foundation's Reset the Table agenda to radically transform the food system, to imbue it with racial equity. He would be proud of Klaus Schwab over at the World Economic Forum joining forces with the United Nations and informing their World Food Systems Summit, which of course is heavily tied with Bill Gates, the man who just declared we should all be eating fake meat exclusively, even as he funds Impossible Foods, whose stated mission is to end animal agriculture. Joseph Stalin would be proud of these people, for it was he, after all, who, in the wake of a grains crisis in the late 1920s, used that as justification to do his own radical transformation of the Soviet food supply, to take total control over food production. And it was in the wake of that collectivization of farms that millions and millions of people died of starvation. I'm Christian, and this is the Ice Age Farmer Broadcast found this talk given by Joseph Stalin himself in May of 1928 when addressing the Institute of Red Professors and the Communist Academy, talking about a grains shortage, a grains crisis in the Soviet Union. Stalin's own words, the way out of that crisis lies firstly in the transition from small, backward, and scattered peasant farms to amalgamated, large-scale socialized farms equipped with machinery and armed with scientific knowledge capable of producing a maximum of grain for the market. Yes, the solution lies in the transition away from individual peasant farming and instead to collective socialized farming. And so in this statement, you can see that even he saw farms as dirty and antiquated, something we needed to do away with as we move to this new collectivism, but not not a bad form of communism that, no, no, this time it's going to be different. This time we're going to make communism work because we have science and technology and surveillance that we, we've never had before. This time is different. The way out lies, secondly, continues Stalin, in expanding and strengthening the state farms and in organizing and developing new large-scale state farms. In other words, in taking control of the food supply. This was not empty rhetoric. 
Within the next five years after that talk, by 1934, 75% of the farms in the Soviet Union had been taken from the farmers known as kulaks. They were just deported to remote regions of the Soviet Union, and their land was confiscated. And again, it was this which precipitated the massive food shortages known as the Holodomor, where millions and millions of people starved to death. It turns out this is a tried and true method by communists as they take over a population. You can see it playing out now in South Africa, where, as you can read in this study, which I do recommend you read, Kill the Farmer, where the South African population was rapidly taken through the stages of genocide. First, we divide the population into blacks and whites, or Muslims and Croats and Serbs, whatever balkanization of the population needs to happen is done. Then we gradually dehumanize part of the population, we take away their rights, we say they don't deserve those rights, and then ultimately we take their land and we kill them. Well, that's what happened in the Soviet Union with the Kulaks, and it's what's happening in South Africa now. This study talks about how in the 90s, hate speech became fine. It became popular to release songs about kill the farmers, kill the whites. And as that happened, more and more people got killed. That's what happens when you talk about it in the mainstream media. That's what happens when Coca-Cola tells you to stop being white. And all this anti-white propaganda going out in every medium imaginable, that's the quantitative result that it will have. is more white people getting killed. The study has it written out. The data is right there for you to look at. And it is culminating now. In the last few months, South Africa has actually passed legislation that legalizes the confiscation of land from white farmers and giving it to black farmers. It's pretty appalling what's happening there. And of course, it's having very real effects on the food production, just as it did when they kicked the kulaks off of the farms in the Soviet Union. We have our own grains crisis happening globally this time. In fact, we've been talking about it for months, but as the world food supplies have dwindled and usually the countries in the world that export most of the food and feed the rest of the planet have started to put limits on the amount of food they're exporting, now that's devolved even further into looking to import food to feed their own people. Here, from AgriCensus, Ukraine, the ninth largest soybean producer in the world, is looking to import soybeans after local supplies dried up and domestic prices surged. And they've started to look towards the Brazilian crop, but that crop is stuck in the ground under heavy rains, which are keeping them from harvest. In Brazil, the world's largest exporter of soybeans, farmers have been unable to harvest their crops due to excessive precipitation in several growing areas. There may be a record crop, but it doesn't matter if it's stuck in the ground. All eyes have been on South America, but this is a continuing problem there. These rains are continuing right now. What that means is because those soybeans are stuck in the ground, Brazil has been unable to plant what's called the saffron, their next corn crop. And that corn crop is losing a ton of yield every day that goes by that it's not in the ground. And some analysts have even started to peg the losses at five metric million tons of corn, which given that Brazil's carryout last year was only 6.4, their ending stocks, the amount of corn that Brazil had was only 6.4, and they've already lost five. So we're talking about, they just wiped out 80% of their total corn ending stocks from last year. So this is a non-trivial blow to corn production, and it's especially a problem when you look at it in light of the fact that all eyes have been on Brazil and Argentina after U.S. and China crop losses these last few years. So this is a cascading problem. It's a global problem 
problem, and it's this global grains crisis that is being used to justify, again, the radical transformation, just like Stalin, of the world food supply and its production. Against that backdrop, in the United States, the coronavirus stimulus bill that was just passed had $5 billion set aside for farmers' aid, just for black farmers. I will say, obligatory at this point, I don't care what color your skin is. We all eat, and I think we should all be able to feed our families. If it's good, healthy, nutritious food, I don't even care where the food comes from, or race shouldn't enter into this equation, unless it's by design, unless it's part of that divide and conquer, leading to the balkanization, and eventually the elimination of parts of the population, and justification to take over the food supply. That's what this is. The funds have been set aside to pay off USDA loans to black farmers only. And not just to bail them out, not just to pay off. Never mind that all farmers have been struggling to make ends meet and trying to service their debt on their USDA loans. Now we're going to bail out just the black farmers. But not only that, we're going to give them 120%. So here, your loan is forgiven, and here's a little bit of extra money on the side because you're black. This is literally the same thing as reparations, but only for farmers here. And again, the point here is, for one, to crush the white farmers, just like the Kulaks. Joseph Stalin would be proud, but also to aggravate, to pour vinegar in the wounds of racial division, to foment this racial division, and ultimately to stir up a race war. This is happening aggressively and rapidly. Tom Vilsack, the Biden-Harris new nominee there at the USDA, the new head there, has just appointed these gentlemen, including Dwayne Goldman, who is going to be the new senior advisor for racial equity to the Secretary of Agriculture. And I don't know why the USDA needs an advisor for racial equity, except that they're implementing exactly the racial equity the Rockefeller Foundation described in their Reset the Table agenda. Goldman, who previously worked at the tech department of Monsanto, which is now part of Bayer Crop Sciences, is being brought in explicitly to, in the words of Tom Vilsack, quote, accelerate a transformation of our food system, same language as the Rockefeller Foundation, the same language as the UN World Food Systems Summit, the same language as the EU farm to fork, a new, equitable, sustainable... It's, it's all one integrated agenda, and that's why the unsavory characters at all of these agencies and think tanks and governments use those same keywords just to sort of wink at each other and say, yeah, this is we're in on it. This is what we're doing. That begins, he continued, with embracing a call for racial justice and equity across food, agriculture, and rural America. The grains are running out, and we're promoting racial differences. It's not just being broadcast from the top of the USDA. It's also happening from the bottom up, where supermarkets are starting to put signs on their shelves like these, which indicate that some food products are created by black-owned companies or by Hispanic-owned companies. It's kind of funny that this is for Goya, who was supposed to be a bad guy when they supported Trump, but this is ridiculous. When I posted this to the Ice Age Farmer Telegram group, which is t.me slash Ice Age Farmer, some people just said, this is, you know, this can't be real. This is lampoonish. It cannot even, I can't conceive of going to a supermarket and seeing the color of the skin of the people that 
that put these products on the shelves. But here it is. I assure you it is real and it is going to expand. Here from supermarketnews.com, Giant Food to highlight minority-owned suppliers on their shelves. It is a pilot program which will be expanding in 2021 to all 164 of their stores. And that's just the beginning. Soon, it won't even be labels. It will be, you don't even get shelf space if you are white or if you're not using robotic automation on your farms, right? I've covered previously the USDA's newly proposed rule that says I need the GPS coordinates of every piece of lettuce harvested. And if you don't have that, you can't sell your product at our shelves. So this is not actually helping black farmers. It's eliminating white ones and then prescribing to the people that they are bailing out. You're going to use robots and farm bugs and do things our way. You don't actually have to take ownership like the Soviet Union did. You don't have to collectivize your farms if you just dictate exactly the conditions that it takes to get your your product on the shelves. It's effectively the same thing, right? You are taking control over the food supply. Here is a new law that's being considered in Colorado, which literally criminalizes the animal husbandry practices that farmers and ranchers have been using since the dawn of time. You won't be able to mate your animals to breed the next generation of livestock anymore. There's now new restrictions on this. It's called the Protect Animals from Unnecessary Suffering and Exploitation. Again, it sounds great. All of these things sound really nice. You're going to own nothing but be happy, right? It's all It's all very... They put a smiley face on communism these days. I also wanted to point out, this literally says lamb and veal will be gone. It's illegal now. You have to wait until livestock are 25% of their natural life lifespan before you can slaughter them, which means it criminalizes lamb and veal. I just want to be very clear that you're witnessing a part of the end of animal agriculture. And if you look at this as disparate, weird things that are happening, well, that's weird they would bail out the black people. Well, that's weird that they would criminalize animal husbandry. Oh, it's weird that they would have fake... No, no. If these things seem odd to you, if they are not making sense to you, if they're just little disparate, odd happenings, then you need to change the lens through which you are viewing reality. You need to adjust your paradigm until you find the one that fits. And I'm telling you, the one that fits is this total takeover of food, this making it illegal to farm and ranch because it's dirty and antiquated. Joseph Stalin said it's not peasant farms owned by people anymore. It's large-scale, state-owned, science and technology-driven farms. That's the future, collectivized farms. And that's why Bill Gates is talking about, I'm going to own it all, you're going to own nothing, and it's going to be fake meat because... Communism will work better if we do it this time with science and technology. I'd also talk about the fact that they have just reclassified animal manure as a highly toxic industrial byproduct in Australia. Never mind that's how we have fertilized our farms since the dawn of time. Now it's dirty and dangerous and you can't use it as fertilizer, and you have to pay a premium to dispose of this industrial waste because they will make it illegal or economically impossible, infeasible to produce food the way we always have been. It's just like Obama said about the coal power plants. You can still open a coal power plant, but we're going to bankrupt you. It will be economically infeasible for you to farm the way you have been from here on forward. And when you look at the cast of characters behind the UN World Food Systems Summit, not only are there many links directly to the finances of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but look at these people. Here's Francesco Branca, who was the World Health Organization's nutrition director, literally telling you, everything has to be reset. We must have smaller amounts of land. We can't devastate land any longer. This is the biodiversity call. It has to do with a 30-30 plan to rewild 
and put land into conservation. Just stop farming. Stop. Just shut them down. Turn them into conservation places. We need to have much smaller amounts of meat on our table. We need to reset. Well, this sounds like it's going to change what you eat, isn't it? Not just the production. They're going to force you to change your diet. The answer is unambiguously, the Eat Lancet Commission comes out and tells you, yes, it's highly intervention driven. Quote, the scale of change to the food system is not going to happen if we leave it up to individuals or the whim of consumer choice. This change requires reframing at the population and systemic level. Hard policy interventions like laws, fiscal measures, subsidies and penalties, trade reconfiguration, and other economic and structural measures, like making it illegal to harvest animals, like making it illegal to use manure for fertilizer. This is what they're talking about, and it's happening now. Another of these individuals, Yan Yi, over in China, founder of the uh, Good Food Fund, in seeking to understand food systems and their impact on the environment, right? This takeover of the food supply, like many things, is intimately tied with global warming and saving the planet. Another example of that is Christiana Figueres, who's from Costa Rica. She has been very involved with the United Nations and the global warming propaganda and all of their programs there. But now she's going to join the board at Impossible Foods. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Again, if you look at it, it's just these disparate happenings and you try and... Why would they take some United Nations global warming person over to a food company? Well, because Impossible Foods' stated goal is to end animal agriculture. And that means playing off policymakers and regulatory pressures to make meat illegal. That's why she's working there. Because this is one integrated agenda. These unsavory cast of characters play multiple roles. They inform the Rockefeller Foundation. You can see many of these people are the authors of that agenda. They also work at the World Economic Forum or at media outlets or at these companies. And the stated goal is to end animal agriculture. We've heard that time and time again from many people, most notably from Pat Brown, the founder of Impossible Foods, which is funded by Bill Gates, who is, quote, deadly serious about eradicating the meat and fish industries. How would you enforce this, though? How would they know how old your cows are or where they are even to enforce the Paws Act or things like that? Well, the answer is simple. Governments are also requiring registration of animals. For instance, today in New Hampshire, there is a bill, House Bill 530, which is entitled Creating an Animal Records Database. It's not ambiguous at all. They want to know every animal out there, what what vaccines they've received or not, and you need to check with the government before you transfer. And this goes down to ferrets and cats and dogs. It's everything across the board. And I want to start by digging in a little further to the Colorado PAWS initiative, which would make animal agriculture economically infeasible. Not only would requiring animals, among a, a bunch of other things that this bill does, requiring animals to reach 25% of their natural lifespan would summarily eliminate veal and lamb as foodstuffs. They're just gone. But it also would drastically reduce the amount of meat available and increase the price of that meat. From Travis Taylor, a CSU livestock extension agent, the additional three years to reach 25% of the natural lifespan of a cow would equal approximately 27,000 additional pounds of feed per animal. Conservatively, this would mean an additional $1,200 per animal in feed input alone. Let's set aside the fact that We don't even have those soybeans and grains right now. We're in the middle of a food shortage, and now they're proposing we just feed cows forever before we even eat them. Just the idea that it would cost $1,200 extra per cow 
means, obviously, the meat would be drastically more expensive from that cow. Not only that, because you're keeping these animals on your feedlot for three extra years now, that means that you can't bring in new cows, right? That slows the whole pipeline down and, like I said, drastically reduces the throughput of the entire industry. So we're cutting down the amount of meat and we're making it more expensive. These are the stated goals, after all, right? We couldn't pull off a meat tax, so now in the name of animal welfare, we're going to institute these policies that reduce the amount of food we're able to produce. Now, how could the state do this? No one's going to know how old my cows are. How are they going to know? Well, they're going to know because they are requiring registration of animals. You can see this. It's already in effect in a number of places, and it's rapidly being rolled out everywhere else. I've mentioned before that British Columbia just passed and is now starting to roll out their animal registration. Here from the star.com, backyard beekeepers will soon need to register their gardens with the BC government. In fact, everything from bees to llamas to cattle in the province will need to register your property under the government's premises ID program, this online registry. It's basically, quote, a record of who and how many animals are on a site. It's a complete way of doing traceability. There's that word we know from Agenda 2030, we see it in COVID, this tracking and tracing of all resources on the planet. And again, this is being rolled out everywhere. For instance, today in New Hampshire, House Bill 532 is being considered. It's entitled Creating an Animal Records Database. The language is directed at pets like ferrets and cats and dogs, requires notifying the government of all of these animals, making sure you keep track of which vaccines they've received or not. And if you want to give a cat to someone, you have to get permission from the government to get a, it's called a transfer slip to do this. It, again, this is mostly addressing domestic animals right now, pets, but it is sponsored by the Committee on Environment and Agriculture. So you can see this is clearly going in the direction of livestock and all other animals. And again, there's we covered Ireland was rolling out an animal registry. Where does this lead? Why do we need to tell the state about all of the animals that we have on our property? Well, it's because animals are dirty and dangerous. And in this era of zoonotic threats and other pandemics, we need to know where those animals are so that, like the UK government does, we can come in and kill them when there's some reported bird flu or something like this. In fact, look at this job posting from the Center for Poultry and Livestock Excellence in Pennsylvania, which was established a few years ago. Pennsylvania's Center for Poultry and Livestock Excellence was established in 2019 by the Pennsylvania General Assembly and Wolf Administration as a part of the historic Pennsylvania Farm Bill. That sounds great. We're going to set aside some funds. We're going to make sure farmers are taken care of and put these research programs into place. But if you really dig into what they do, it's all about biosecurity and ending animal agriculture in the name of food safety. It's all right here. Here their job posting is, check it out, $475,000 is available this round for projects like, quote, innovative research for mass depopulation of domestic livestock in commercial confinements, operations, large scale such as commercial swine and layer facilities, birds and pigs, with priority being placed on humane, safe, practical and efficient manners to euthanize large numbers of animals in a timely manner. We need to take a ton of your money and figure out how to kill your animals. A mass depopulation agenda for livestock is being funded and researched here. We need to implement practical biosecurity measures for both commercial feedlots, but also backyard 
domestic livestock. We're coming for your animals. Ladies and gentlemen, it's right here. They're hiring people to figure out how to kill your animals. And again, you can find evidence like this of these programs and these agendas like the Colorado Bill and the BC Registration. It's advancing along these vectors everywhere at the same time right now. This all seems so patently absurd that it just sounds like such a ridiculous overreach of government to walk around killing your animals. And it's happening. And that means we need to adjust our paradigm. We need to change the lens through which we're viewing this. This is all. All of these things that I've talked about, which is Colorado outlying your harvesting of animals before you feed them $1,200 more worth of feed, right? Keeping them for three extra years. Outlawing the way animals are kept now. Registering animals happening around the world. In many places, it's already been in there for years. Using these animal registries to go around and kill people's animals. And then hiring people to draft plans to use those registrations to figure out how to implement mass depopulation in name of public safety. It's pretty clear when you look at this confluence of things, what's going on here, especially in light of their stated goal of ending animal agriculture. At this point in time, I really don't know how to spell it out anymore succinctly. Christian, you say we should be growing food and you say we should be raising animals, but it looks like it's game over. It looks like the government is already going to make this illegal. Why would I even bother? The answer is quite simple. If you give up now because the situation looks grim, then they have already won. And we can go down the list of the three action tracks at the UN World's Food Systems Summit, take them apart, see their interconnections. It becomes just so patently, blatantly, superficially obvious that these are people are perpetrating their agenda. But Joseph Stalin would be proud of these people, but they're doing it bigger and better and faster than ever. And in the United States especially, we will be made an example of. We are now sitting at this confluence of the tried and tested communist takeover approaches. We're looking at a confluence of the Ukraine, the Soviet mass starvation. We're looking at the race war, Rwanda style. We're looking at the balkanization and breakup of the country, like Yugoslavia. We're looking at Weimar style hyperinflation of the dollar, multiplying all of that by the United States technological total surveillance grid, Stasi style on steroids. I mean, all of these things multiplied by each other and then raised to the power of Uncle Sam doing things bigger and better. They're going to make some fireworks come out of the US in the next few years. And I do not say this to be alarmist. I would very much prefer to be wrong here, but I think it's pretty clear that all of these things are going, I mean, look, look at paying off black farmers only has nothing to do with helping anybody. This is, again, a tried and true way to destroy a population is divide and conquer them. All right, we're going into another category now, and it has its own theme song.
Thank you, James and Bobby Purify. And yes, this is about Dimwit, the man in charge of the daycare center in Washington, D.C. right now. He is their puppet, or as I refer to him as Dimwit. I have a warning to everyone, and this is something that's very important that you understand. You probably already know this, but like in the movies, okay, uh, they cut a movie and they do all the, the uh, auditing, uh, the editing, and, and all of this stuff, and then finally they put it, and this is the term, in the can. So it's in the can, and this is from the old 16-millimeter films. They, they would make them, put them in the can, big reels, and then they put them on a shelf for when they're ready for distribution. And when I cut my radio show, it goes in the can, and then uh, it's taken out of the can and, and uh, uploaded to my engineer. Everything that the communist politicians in the House and in the Senate uh, are going to do has been in the can for decades for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They would have a bill and they put it up on a shelf. Now, this is an oversimplification, but they put it up on a shelf. And every year or so, they have a staff pull it down and update it according to the new technology and new needs and, and that kind of thing. Everything that's going to be happening has been in the communist can for decades, for half a century or longer. And they're going to do everything. They're pulling it all out. They've already had three gun control bills, which would ban everything, everything, and make it illegal for you to even loan a gun to your son, make it illegal for you to sell a firearm, make it illegal for you to transfer a firearm except to a dealer or somebody who buys a license or some other crap. Anyway, that's what's happening. And the big thing... The big push is the destruction of America. They need to destroy everything that's American, everything that's white, everything that's male, everything that's Christian. Everything that's good has to be destroyed and filled up with all kinds of weird stuff. So Dimwit has just created a gender policy council. You get that? A gender policy council. This is a council that a bunch of it's a bunch of sexual perverts who are going to decide what Biden, as if he's doing anything, he's just nothing. He he can't even put two nickels together and say ten cents. This gender council is going to help him focus on uplifting the rights of women, as if they give a crap about a woman and to address gender-based discrimination and violence. They, they have to put the word woman in there because otherwise the idiots out there would probably not like what they're going to do. But if it's for the women or children, if they could use the word children, that would work just as good. What they're talking about is transvestites, sexual perverts, homosexuals, uh, pedophilia, you, you name it. Anything that is sexually perverted are now going to be promoted widespread by this this um, illegal administration. They're, you're going to be seeing stuff, you're going to go, wait a minute, that's just insane. Can't, they can't do that in America. You're going to be seeing a lot of those. I can't do that in America. Biden has an advisor. He's a black racist, uh, Cedric Richmond. He's a senior advisor. And he uh, he's come out and said, look, what we're going to do is everything we can to start reparations now. Well, they have. Remember what I said is, and, and what uh, the ISH farmer said, 
in this so-called COVID bill, which isn't a COVID bill, it's a it's a payback for getting him elected or making it look like he got elected anyway, they're going to be paying off the debts, the USDA debts, black farmers, to the tune of 120%. So that means if he owes $100,000, well, they'll pay off the $100,000 and give him 20000 on top of it. So that looks like reparations to me. The resident comedian here has this thing he's been doing. It's called a week in news. A week in news. And this is his uh, report for this week. Good evening. You can't see the cage we have you in, so you think you're free. Here are today's top stories to strengthen your cage. All-time favorite children's toy, Mr. Potato Head, is getting his junk sliced off. Hasbro announced they're changing the name from Mr. Potato Head to the gender-neutral name of Potato Head, which is sure to be offensive to the decapitated community. Pretending there aren't any genders has become a popular way for Marxists to be more inclusive to all genders. But more importantly, Hasbro's neutering of Mr. Potato Head is expected to be a powerful way of being more inclusive to dumb people. Coca-Cola is getting rave reviews for their anti-racist training. In it, they advise their employees try to be less white. In their training, Coca-Cola, Americans' favorite thing to use to give themselves type 2 diabetes, sought to reduce racism by using racism, which seems effective as two wrongs always equal a right. For some reason, though, Coke telling people try to be less white now has people telling Coke try to be less stupid. President Biden's nominee for Assistant Secretary of Health, Dr. Rachel Levine, a transgender woman, is coming under fire. There's concern that Rachel will push a very progressive and therefore beautiful agenda of allowing the government to provide children with puberty blockers and surgical sex change surgery, even without their parents' consent. Accordingly, during a hearing, Senator Rand Paul had a very simple line of questioning for the good doctor, which was, Dr. Levine, you have supported both allowing minors to be given hormone blockers to prevent them from going through puberty, as well as surgical destruction of a minor's genitalia. Dr. Levine, do you believe that minors are capable of making such a life-changing decision decision as changing one's sex. Dr. Levine, who apparently doesn't understand English, refused to answer the question twice. Predictably, the mainstream media has attacked Senator Rand Paul, calling him transphobic. Apparently, the senator didn't get the memo that nuanced thought, questioning, and standing up for the well-being of children who can't stand up for themselves is hate speech. And I agree. Not only should the government be able to give children hormone blockers and surgically alter their genitals without their parents' consent, I think they should be able to do it without the child's consent either. That'd be more progressive. I remember being a child. When I was five years old, I was absolutely certain that I was Batman. But because I had abusive parents, they didn't allow me to get superhero reassignment surgery which would have permanently altered me for the rest of my life based on what made sense to me at five. Now, as I'm 39 years old, I'm obviously still certain that I'm Batman. I just wish there would have been a government back then that would have protected me from my parents protecting me from my five-year-old brain. This just in, we should also allow children to drive cars 
because some children want to, and allowing them to do so would be a progressive way to provide them with a safe space to be a danger to themselves. In a new twist of events, President Biden signed an executive order, this one allowing the U.S. to fund global abortions. This comes a week after Biden endorsed the Chinese Communist Party's genocide against the Uyghurs, which includes murder, rape, torture, forced sterilizations, and forced abortions. We can't wait for his next executive order and what kind of help it'll inflict on society. Oh, it's already happened. Biden signed an executive order giving the Chinese Communist Party access to the U.S.'s power grid. Seems like it would have been xenophobic not to. This just in! Biden's approval ratings are at an all-time high in China. After President Biden and his boss Kamala Harris relentlessly criticized Donald Trump for keeping kids in cages that Biden and Obama built, they're now keeping kids in those same cages. However, unlike how the cages were cages under the Trump administration, Biden and Harris have helped the cages undergo cage identity reassignment surgery, as Biden and Harris now identify the cages as temporary structures and overflow camps. And for the conspiracy theorists full of misinformation who mistakenly think Biden and Harris are hypocrites and dishonest, Daily Wire contributor Cabot Phillips made this flowchart to help you determine if a kid is in a cage or not. In Nigeria, 317 girls were kidnapped overnight from a boarding school during a heavily armed raid. It's feared the girls will be sold into sex slavery. Meanwhile, in the U.S., President Biden eliminated Trump's Operation Talon, a program that targeted its sex offenders illegally living in the U.S. Biden came under fire for his decision that he may or may not remember. And for the critics, in addition to all of them being racist, they're also not being inclusive to the sex offender community that identifies as wanting to sexually violate your children. Shame on you, critics. New York mob boss Governor Andrew Cuomo has been hit with sexual harassment allegations from a former staff member in his administration. And now he's facing sexual harassment allegations from a second woman, too. Cuomo, the man who Biden has called the gold standard in COVID leadership, is also being investigated for lying about and covering up nearly 1,900 nursing home deaths caused by his gold standard in COVID leadership. President Biden visited Texas to survey the damage caused by the devastating winter storm. Biden, who now wears two masks that are different colors, so you'll see that he's wearing two masks, arrived in Texas in the nick of time, 12 days after the winter storm began. While he visited, it was 80 degrees, which allowed him to get an accurate assessment of the winter storm. During his visit, the number of people wearing masks in Texas surged to one. And after Biden left Texas, things in the state were exactly the same as before he arrived. After many promises of diplomacy and not war, the team of people who probably wear hoods that run President Biden had President Biden bomb the sovereign nation of Syria this week. And he did it without congressional approval, which is normally a big no-no and illegal. But Joe Executive Order Biden doesn't need anyone's approval. He doesn't have it anymore either. So he went ahead and did it. Joe's bombing took out an Iranian-based militia group that many say posed no threat to the U.S. and was also involved in fighting ISIS. When asked about the bombing, President Biden explained it as, it's like fireworks, but at people. In other news, 30 House Democrats are asking Biden to give up his sole control of the nuclear codes. 
I wonder why his own party would be asking him to do that. BLM, an organization dedicated to pretending to care about Black Lives Mattering, has removed language from its website about how they're trying to disrupt the nuclear family. The organization likely believes that hiding this goal of theirs from their website will keep people from knowing what they're trying to do. The founders of the BLM organization have stated they are trained Marxists. Marxism is an evil philosophy that's basically racism against the whole human race. Marxism has an aim of destroying free society in order to usher in communism. Primary objectives that Marxists seek to accomplish in order to give rise to communism are destroying the family unit and getting people to no longer believe objective truth. This just in! There's no biological difference between men and women. This just in! Math is canceled because it's racist. This just in! Being obese is healthy now. And if you believe us, then you can no longer trust yourself to determine what's true for you. You'll need to continue looking to us to tell you what's true for you. And now, as we conclude today's news report, your cage is stronger than ever. Now we're going into the government threat category. The Alejandro... Mayorkas. This is the insane communist, racist, anti-American, anti-white Department of Homeland Security head. He's a Secretary of Homeland Security. So he comes out and he says, "How my Department of Home, my how my Department of Homeland Security will combat domestic extremism." Domestic violent extremism poses the most lethal and persistent terrorism-related threat to our country today. The Department of Homeland Security, working with its many partners at the local, state, and federal levels, is taking immediate action to address it. For several years, the United States has been suffering an upsurge in domestic violent extremism. The horror of seeing the U.S. Capitol attacked on Jan 6th was a brutal example of our suffering, and it compels us all to action. Nowhere does this insane commie say anything about Antifa, BLM, real riots, and I'll tell you something. Attacked, there were over half a million conservatives in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. If we wanted to attack the Capitol, there would be nothing there except a hole in the ground. What... Who believes this crap? Other commies, that's what. So basically what he's saying is that uh, you you uh, stupid white people better watch your butts because we're coming after you. And they are. They're going to. They're going to be cracking down on everything they can. The, what you've seen so far of cancel culture and, and uh, 100% communist control of communication is just starting. The commies are going to be working with the White House on a plan to crack down on dissident, on dissent, I'm sorry, dissent, and eliminate First Amendment rights. And that's not an exaggeration. They're having a meeting with uh, the powers that be, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and the others, to see if there's better ways to crack down harder on misinformation. Now, the glowing example of Honesty and Truth, the uh, head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, W-R-A-Y. I pronounce it a whole different way, but we'll just say Christopher Wray. 
He's come out and said that white supremacists are trying to join the ranks of law enforcement and U.S. military so they can terrorize minorities and initiate a collapse of society. He said that right-wing extremists sought to join law enforcement and the military in an effort to further their ideologies. Uh, This is based on investigations from 2016 to 2020 and were first reported by ABC, who had access to a leaked copy of the report. White supremacists would likely seek affiliation with military and law enforcement entities in furtherance of their ideas. Now, black extremists, that's okay. Black supremacists, that's fine. It doesn't matter. What they're doing is just what communists have always done in takeover of a country. First, they find a portion of the population to put blame on, kind of like what Hitler did with the Jews. And then they demonize them. And in our case, it's whites. And if you are white, you're automatically, automatically a racist. No, well, actually, the new word is supremacist. Supremacist. And the, the way to control your beliefs and what you think you're seeing is by controlling what you hear. Therefore, the communists are taking the first steps to censor conservative TV channels, specifically Fox News, which is not that conservative. Fox News, Newsmax, and One American News. And, of course, it's the, uh, it's the communists that are doing this. Uh, you, you want to call them Democrats, you go right ahead. I wouldn't grant them the right to be used, to be called Democrat any longer. So they're, they're trying to uh, get these three stations off of all of the cable news. These are congressmen that are pushing this right now. Now, remember, we're under the category government threat. Well, let's see. So Dimwit hired this fruitcake named John Kerry as his climate czar. And Kerry comes out and says, that's it. We have nine years to avoid climate catastrophe. Nine years. Nine years. Well, let's see how much damage the communists can do in a year. Because that's what's going to happen. They're going to do... Remember I was mentioning things in the can? Well, all of these bills and things are in the can, and they have been, and they're pulling them down and putting them out, pulling them down, putting them out. And they're going to keep doing it because they have no opposition. There's, 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 there is none. Under this category, you know the Amazon Alexa? It's a little speaker you put down somewhere in your house, and you say, Alexa, play Monavani. Alexa, oh, what's the uh, wind speed velocity of a sparrow in flight? And it answers you. Well, they're now trying to figure out ways to use this. Instead of being a passive item, it can now start gathering data in a different manner. They can use sound waves to put out there. And they can tell your heart rate, your heartbeat. Now, a heartbeat is as, is as uh, singular as a foot fingerprint is. So they can tell who's in around you, who's around them. And by listening to the heartbeat, they're going to be working on this a lot more to find out different things. They can find out the size of the space that it's in, whether it's in a refrigerator or a uh, 20 by 20 room. They're going to be able to figure out the temperature because sound waves travel differently in uh, different uh, temperatures. There's a lot to this. I'm just bringing this up for your attention that further on down the road, you're going to hear about it. And you go, oh, I heard that on Kurt's show. 
the Nevada Democratic Committee. This is the the big people in Nevada who uh, are are in control of all of the voting for the state of Nevada. They all quit. They quit. The staff of the Nevada Democrat Committee quit because, and this is, I'm finding this astounding, card-carrying socialists are now in charge of the committee. So all the other Democrats quit. I guess they didn't like that. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. Nevada has gone into the gutter to the left. Now the House passed uh, gun laws. They, they passed gun laws. Yeah, this is, this is very simple. The, the, the psycho commie Nancy Pelosi ran gun control legislation through the House, and. Dimwit got his anti-gun, anti-white, anti-male, anti-American attorney general put in. 28 politicians. There were 28 of them who committed treason. This is all it is. It's as simple as that. When you put somebody into power by your hand that is going to be destructive to the United States and the the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights... You're a traitor. Merrick Garland is going to be the Attorney General. He is so far anti-gun, it's it's astounding. He's like, he should be working in communist China. So we have, here's the tw- 20, there's, there's 20 GOP senators who voted for him. And I'm not going to give you their their state. If you know who they are, then they're in your state. Roy Blunt, Richard Burr, Shelley Capito, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, John Cornyn, Joni Ernst, Lindsey Graham, Chuck Grassley, Jim Inhofe, Ron Johnson, James Langford, Mitch McConnell, Jerry Moran, Lisa Murkowski. You know, you can tell the, the, the communists that are on here. Lisa's one. Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, he's another. Mike Rounds, John Thune, Tom Tillis. These are the ones that put Garrett into the attorney general's seat. Now, all of these people are, these are Republicans. Okay, so those 20 voted with the communists to put Garland in as attorney general. Now, that's in the Senate. In the House, Pelosi's House violated the Constitution with this gun control bill. Here are the eight Republicans that voted for it. Vern Buchanan, Brian Fitzpatrick, Maria Salazar, Andrew Garbino, Chris Smith, Fred Upton, Charles Humanis, Adam Kingsger. These are the rhinos that voted for the gun control. This this is pushing us into civil war. This is going to be it. And, and just because the guy says, well, I'm a Republican, and I had an excuse for voting that way, that guy's an idiot. And that pile of Schumer in the Senate said that as soon as that gun bill gets to the Senate, I'm going to push it right through there. You know what that does? You ever go in to buy a gun at a gun store and, and you got to make a phone call to the FBI? And uh, they, they call the FBI and the FBI says, yes, you can sell him the gun or uh, there's a time lag on it. And usually they'll give you three days and at the end of three days, if if the FBI hasn't called you back, you can give them the gun. In this bill, it's unlimited holdback. If the unless the FBI ever calls back, 
you can never buy the gun. That's in that bill. This country is going down the tube faster and faster. And I have told this many times on my show, when the Schumer hits the fan, it's going to be very fast. It could be weeks. It could be days. And then all of a sudden, things start going sideways fast. And this is what I'm looking at. And the reason is, is because there's something called induced stupidity. And that's because people are not listening. They haven't learned. Well, they're not going to learn because they're not being taught history in school. This is ridiculous. You don't know what's going to happen. Why? Because you didn't learn history. Do you know why I played 1984? It's because so many people come in my store and I said, have you ever read the book 1984? No, what's that? When I was in high school, it was mandatory reading because the people that were in charge of us children wanted us to know never to do that again. Never to allow that to happen. So what's happening is that they just, the, the powers that be realize that if the kids are too smart, well, <laughs> then uh, uh, we won't be able to win. We won't be able to achieve our goals. 50% of high school seniors think Sodom and Gomorrah were married. 55% of the U.S. population doesn't know the sun is a star. 29% couldn't name the vice president. 73% of Americans couldn't correctly say why we fought the Cold War. Only 3% of the population of the United States can identify the first president of the United States. This is induced stupidity, and it's getting worse and worse. And this is the part of the plan. You're going to listen to a KGB defector, Yuri Bezmenov, and he had a warning to Americans. Mr. Bezmenov was born in 1939 in a suburb of Moscow. He was the son of a high-ranking Soviet Army officer. He was educated in the elite schools inside the Soviet Union and became an expert in Indian culture and Indian languages. He had an outstanding career with Novosti, which was the, and still is, I should say, the press arm or the press agency of the Soviet Union. It turns out that this is also a front for the KGB. He escaped to the West in 1970 after becoming totally disgusted with the Soviet system, and he did this at great risk to his life. He certainly is one of the world's outstanding experts on the subject of Soviet propaganda and disinformation and active measures. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is the slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, activne meropriatia in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology 
is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials, economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense, an economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis to promise people all kind of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with uh, benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. Your leftists... In the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison 
or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was, he was already a Marxist, he was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki, he was killed by Amin, then Amin was killed by Babra Karman with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The time bomb is ticking with every second. All right, I want to get a little personal with you guys. Now, you know, I've, I've had a varied history. And I'm sometimes people think that I'm I'm not real. I'm an accumulation of many, many, many people put together because of everything I've done in my life and my vast storehouse of knowledge. No, it's me. But I want to give you a little history of me so that you understand where I'm coming from. Years ago, and we're not going to get into how many years ago, I used to work for a temporary agency. And I did many times when I was younger if I didn't have a a job. It was Manpower Temporary Agency. And what they do is they hire people for a day, a week, a month. and, and, And it's different things. Like one day you might be cleaning a warehouse the next day you might be stacking stacking sheet metal. The next day you might be cleaning leather. The next day you might be delivering plants. You, you never know what you're going to do. But at least there was money coming in. Okay. When I was a kid, I used to a- ask my uncles, what should I be when I grow up? What should I be when I grow up? And every one of them told me the same thing. It doesn't matter. Just be the best at it that you can be. Don't be sloppy. Don't take a job and then be half-assed at it. And I took that to heart. Well, we got a phone call one day at Manpower in Sacramento. And they said, uh, Hewlett Packard is building a plant in Roseville. And they need some people there who have some electronic uh, understanding and who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. And we, have to, we need help finishing building the production lines. So I said, sure, send me off. So it was a two-week gig. And we go to Roseville, and it's a giant warehouse. And we we have to we have to create production lines inside, and, and build a desks and this and that, and this is all of this stuff. Well, in the one area where I was working, we had like twenty people working there, in that area, and most of them, I mean, they're nice people, but they just have no initiative whatsoever. So. I ended up being the supervisor for all of them, not because somebody said, hey, you're the supervisor, just because I, the, people would come to me and say, look, I, I'm not sure where this should go. And I said, well, let's put it over here. Well, how do I tighten this? Well, here, you use this, this wrench, blah, blah, blah. All right, so we did this. So for two weeks, I helped put together the whole back end of the Hewlett Packard Roseville plant. And then one day, the main supervisor walks up to me and says, uh, you want a job? I said, well, I, I got one. And he goes, no, 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 no. I mean, we want to hire you permanent. You you got something that these people don't have. Uh, you have initiative. You have personal initiative. And you're getting things done. So I said, sure. So they hired me. And my job was to put together a production line for the new CRT monitors. And this is a little while ago then. You know, these are the heavy-duty Computer monitors, the kinds that weighed like 20, 30 pounds a piece, like a t- big TV. Okay, so I had to put a line together to, to not only put, put them, not only assemble them, but to, to uh, 
run quality control on them so that they came out the other end perfect. Well, I was even I was so good at this that they even sent me to Palo Alto to train on a new magical printer called a dot matrix. Yeah, any of you who know this kind of equipment, you know that's a, that's kind of funny because that thing, that's the one that sounds like a machine gun going off when it's printing. You have to have a sound cabinet to put it in if you're going to use it in an office. So this is this is what I was doing. I was working in, in Hewlett Packard and and it was doing great. I was a quality control engineer. Now I had an electronic background, but they continued to train me in there, so I became the best that there was. Period. I was the best quality control engineer Hewlett Packard had in this area. And then they got contracts with governments. And when you get a contract with our government, our government is a communist group. It's an organization. It always has been. It has since since the early 1900s. So they have all this psychosis working with them. And one of them was what they call diversity hiring. Well, that's what they call it now. Then it was quota hiring. So they had to hire diverse uh, ethnic people, right? Males, females, it doesn't matter. And the other thing that didn't matter was whether they knew a damn thing about what they were doing. I don't care what color you are. I don't care anything about this job except whether or not they can do it. And the majority of the people they were hiring didn't know how to do anything. I'm Picture a production line of about 20 people. Each one has their own desk and work area. And a monitor comes to the first guy, and his job is to put the, put the, uh, the whole tube inside and lock it down. And then it goes to the next guy, whose job is to put a circuit board in. And then it goes to the next guy, whose job is to put uh, feed cables in. And then it goes you know, on and on and on. So I had to train each person to do a simple job. It's more like programming a robot than training a person, which is fine, right? That's I could do it. And and most of the people were really, really well uh, meaning and they, they really wanted to perform well. They just needed to know what to do. We had this one Puerto Rican kid. Now I'm 6'2", 225 pounds, and he's probably about 5'8". 150 pounds but he was a wise ass and he had a chip on his shoulder the size of New Jersey and I would try and teach him how to align uh, the picture tube and and he kept giving me this attitude of don't treat me like I'm an idiot I, I know as much as you do and blah 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 I was just very rude and uh, antagonistic and now we have Let's say something, uh, one of these things comes to me and it doesn't work. So I got to figure out why it doesn't work. And then I have to go into the clean room. This is a this is a room inside this building that you walk into the front door, you close it, and it's an airlock. And you have to put on uh, paper shoes and have special gloves and a mask. You cannot allow any contaminant whatsoever in this room. So one day I'm going into this room to figure out uh, how many of these resistors I need and how many of this anoid I need and blah, blah, blah. And here this guy is in there smoking a cigarette. And I come in the door and I see him there. I go, what the hell? And he walks up to me and he plays this this, uh, routine of sticks his face right in mine and says, what the hell are you going to do? What do you think you're going to... And at that exact moment, something snapped. With my left hand, I grabbed him by his larynx. Any of you out there who know fighting, real fighting, you know what I just meant. I grabbed him by his larynx and I picked him off the ground. This all happened in slow motion. I don't even remember 
most of it. But what I picked him up, and my only thought was, how quick can I kill this guy so I can get back to work? And a friend of mine who served with me in Nam, he was a Green Braid, he worked there too, and he, he was in their room. And he just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, it's not worth it. And it just snapped me out of whatever, whatever I snapped into, and I dropped the guy. I walked out, went directly to the supervisor, and I said, I want two weeks severance pay. I'm out of here. He did, And he had seen the whole thing. So he didn't even argue. He didn't even say anything. So I packed up my stuff, and everybody there was asking, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I just said, well, I'm going to buy a school bus, turn it into a motorhome, and I'm moving to Oregon. And I left. Two weeks later, I showed up in my school bus that I had converted into a motorhome on my way to Oregon. That's a whole different story. But from that point on, I never worked for another man. I realized that I don't need to. I have personal initiative. And I have the ability to do whatever I want to do. Now, there's a, there's a definition of personal initiative. It's actually, it's just a definition of initiative. And I'm going to read it to you. Initiative. It's a noun. The ability to use your judgment to make decisions and do things without needing to be told what to do. That's initiative. Your personal initiative is that level of initiative that you have as a personal person. It did personally, okay? And I'll read you this. And I'll have a link to this stuff here. Do you create your life or does life just happen to you? Are you proactive or reactive? Are you willing, motivated, and self-aware to take responsibility for your time on this planet? Every day we wake up and face a day of choices. You can choose to procrastinate, to worry, be fearful. You can choose indecisiveness, mediocrity, or you can take control of the moment and make things happen. We're all human beings with free will, and we have the ability to control our behavior and our mindset. Each of us has a capacity to choose our thoughts, our emotions, and our beliefs. We have the power to take responsibility for our destiny. As I have said many times, life is a participation sport. With all that we have been blessed with, free will, creative thought, and belief, many of us don't bother to take responsibility for directing our lives. Most people think reactively. They automatically react to daily stimulus or whatever that life throws at them. Instead of taking initiative and making things happen, they generally stay within their comfort zones. And that's generally what most people are. They're reactive. They just go through life doing whatever they're expected to do. When something happens to them, they'll react to it. People come in the store all the time and say, how's life treating you? I say, you're asking the wrong question. What's the right question? How am I treating life? Habit and fear keep these reactives from the risk of going above and beyond, devoid of proactive action, without energy and effort, in taking personal responsibility to create a journey of happiness and achievement, life just happens. The reactives go with the flow, wherever the flow takes them. The governor says, well, you got to close down all of these businesses. The reactive people go, oh, sure, okay, okay. A proactive knows that one of the secrets of life is to nurture a habit of personal initiative. By applying will, let me give you that one again. By applying willpower and creative imagination, we can successfully engineer our lives. 
We can choose our path based on our individual core values, our self-awareness, and most importantly, our ultimate life goals. This is a problem in humanity. The concept of, of goals has been eradicated. Most people have no concept of goals. My nephew, his goal in life was to work the drive-up window at McDonald's. Exactly what is personal initiative? Simply, it's recognizing what needs to be done and then doing it, or even more, without being told. It's using our imagination to problem-solve, to perform a service of value to others, to take action outside of our comfort zone. Practicing the habit of personal initiative takes us closer to achieving our goals and purpose in life without the expectation of acknowledgement or reward. Every day, whether at work, play, or while going about our daily routine, we come face-to-face with opportunities to render additional service that might contribute to some small way to improve the lives we touch. Every day, by taking personal initiative and a proactive approach, we have the opportunity to make a positive difference. Taking personal initiative is not only being proactive, it can also be a labor of love. This labor of love not only generates positive energy, it also brings the intrinsic reward of passion and joy. When we live a life of personal initiative, our above and beyond produce positive results and afford us the choice of creating a life with intention and purpose. Personal initiative is a secret of life that is fundamental to realizing and creating our future. That's the reality of it. This came from a blog, and I'll have the link to it to where you can actually read it. I want you to listen to a gentleman named Napoleon Hill. His organization helped hundreds of thousands of people become more and more able, not only in their day-to-day life, but in their businesses. And this is just one part of his teaching. Personal initiative is the dynamo which starts the faculty of imagination into action in the process of translating one's definite major purpose into its physical or financial equivalent. If you aim for success above mediocrity, you will need to learn to act on your own personal initiative because your success is something which you must achieve for yourself without someone telling you what to do or how to do it. Incidentally, Cyrus H.K. Curtis, the former owner of the Saturday Evening Post, was uh, responsible for a motto on personal initiative of such great importance that I want you to have it. Said he, there are two kinds of men who never amount to much. Those who cannot do as they are told and those who can do nothing else. Of course, Mr. Curtis's implication is very clear. He implied that those who amount to something worthwhile in life are those who move on their own personal initiative without being told what to do or why they should do it. The men who stand out in the minds of the public as the greatest successes from the days of George Washington on to the present are those who uh, chose their own occupation, business, or profession and moved on their own personal initiative in achieving their purpose. And those who are getting ahead most rapidly today, no matter in what position they began, are those who promote themselves to a higher place in life by acting on their own personal initiative. The habit of personal initiative not only inspires one to move on his own responsibility, but it also influences him to carry through until he completes that which he undertakes in a manner pleasing to all concerned, because he knows that a winner never quits and a quitter never wins. And right here is an appropriate place to say something I perhaps should have said before, namely, that a big success is made up of a great number of little circumstances 
each of which is so small and seemingly insignificant that most people pass it by as not worthy of notice. Some may think, for example, that the habit of personal initiative is unimportant, but we have only to take a look at the record of some of our greatest successes to recognize that personal initiative was an important factor without which they never would have achieved success. For example, no one told F.W. Woolworth to start a five and ten cent store. The idea was his own. He acted on his own personal initiative in putting his idea into action and lived to see it yield him a fortune well above $100 million. I now wish to give you an outline of the more important attributes of the person who has sufficient personal initiative to give him leadership in his chosen occupation. One, first of all, the person who follows the habit of personal initiative has a definite major purpose in life and a plan for its attainment. Two, and a mastermind alliance with those whose help is essential in achieving his major purpose. Three, he has the necessary persistence and the will to win to carry him along when the going is hard and he meets with obstacles. Four, he makes decisions promptly when he has the necessary facts on which to base them and changes them slowly, if at all. Five, he follows the habit of doing more than he is paid for and he does so in a pleasing, positive mental attitude. Six, he accepts full responsibility for everything he undertakes and never passes the book when things go wrong. Seven, he can take friendly criticism without resentment because he has learned to profit by it. Eight, he never requests anyone to do anything for him without giving that person an adequate motive for doing so. Nine, he never expresses an opinion about anything unless he has thought the subject through and is prepared to state how he came by his opinion. Ten, he follows the habit of listening much and talking only when he has something to say which may benefit himself or others. Eleven, he has a well-developed sense of observation of small details and knows his job from the smallest detail to the greatest. Twelve, he never tells anyone to do anything without suggesting why it should be done and how it may be done best. Thirteen, he follows the habit of concentrating his full attention on one thing at a time. Fourteen, his mental attitude is positive at all times when he is in communication with other people. Fifteen, if you ask him a question, he will give you a direct answer, even if he has to tell you he does not know the correct answer. Sixteen, last but perhaps most important of all, he never puts off until tomorrow that which should have been done last week because he knows that the habit of procrastination is near the top of the list of the causes of failure. If you can rate OK on each of these 16 traits of personal initiative, you are a leader in your field of endeavor. Uh, when you come to examine yourself on the subject of personal initiative, just remember that your success or your failure depends very largely on the action you take in connection with your occupation. No one will tell you what you should do no one will tell you what not to do. The decision must be your own and uh, you must follow through and carry out your decision on your own personal initiative. If you work for wages or a salary, you should decide to promote yourself through your own personal initiative to the top of the scale in your occupation. And remember that your promotion is entirely in your hands. So I hope you're getting the idea, the general idea of what initiative is, what personal initiative is. People have the mistaken belief that 
They can ride the tailcoats of life and succeed at whatever they want to do. It never has happened. It never will happen. Yeah, you might hit the lottery, and then that'll be gone for a short period because you have no idea what you're doing with the tools that you were just given. Now, don't get me wrong. My life hasn't been a bed of roses. I have been many times needing help, needing a hand up, not a hand out. One time we were barely making barely making enough money to survive, and this guy came by. I, I was selling uh, seafood on a street corner, and this guy comes by, and he's a real nice-looking guy, and looked kind of like a lumberjack, and he was in his uh, mid-40s, and we talked for about an hour amongst all the other customers, and he said, look, what, what would you need to uh, make your business more profitable? I said, about a thousand bucks. He said, that's it? I said, yeah, that's all I need. I can make do with a lot less than normal people do because I'm smarter. He handed me $1,000. And I just looked at him. He goes, hey, look, I own the log home building company just down the street here. When you get the, the money to pay me back, come on by. I said, I'll pay you back within six months. So he just smiled and we shook hands and off he went. That doesn't happen every day. I paid him back in three months. Because I was able to buy more product and afford better signs that I put out on the street corners. So, you know, I, I get, I have got help before. In fact, when uh, Angie was pregnant with my son Eric, we could we couldn't afford the doc payments. So this was in California. So they put us on Medi-Cal and food stamps. So she would get uh, aid to dependent mothers, that kind of thing. All right. So a couple months later, my son was born. So. It, Within a total of a six-month period, we got uh, food stamps and Medi-Cal in California, and I called her up on the phone. I called the Medi-Cal lady up on the phone and said, okay, we need to cancel. She goes, what do you mean cancel? I said, we don't need it anymore. I just got another job, and and uh, my kid's been born, so we don't need the uh, medical expenses uh, to be covered either. They thought it was astounding that I actually called up and canceled instead of going the full year. I didn't need it. It wasn't fair. It wasn't an honorable thing to do. And besides, I knew I had enough personal in- initiative to push through whatever problems I have. The key here is to set a goal for yourself. What is That doesn't mean, you know, and when I, by the time I'm 50, I'll have a million-dollar type goal. It means what do you want to do in your life? What do you like doing? What do people want? What do people need? And then you figure it out and you do it. That's basically what it is. What does society need and or want then you do or supply it. It's real simple. But unfortunately, it's been eradicated from our consciousness in the United States. That used to be how we worked. This is how humankind worked for thousands of years. You see something that's needed, you do it. If there's a job that needs done, you don't wait for somebody to say, hey, get off your butt and go do that. That shows no initiative. And you're not going anywhere at all. Many of you have heard this before, but you're going to hear it again now. This is a, this is a little thing that was written in 1899 by a guy named Elbert Hubbard. It's called A Message to Garcia. And I'll keep reading it until everybody gets it. Now, this, this it's self-explanatory, all right? If you work for a man, in heaven's name, work for him. Now, remember, this is written in 1899, not 1999. If he pays wages that supply you your bread and butter, work for him, speak well of him, think well of him, and stand by him, and stand by the institution he represents. 
I think if I worked for a man, I'd, I'd work for him. I'd not work for him a part of his time, but all of his time. Now, what does that mean? That means his time is your boss's time. When you're at work, you work for him. I'd give an undivided service or none. If put it to the pinch, an ounce of loyalty is worth a pound of cleverness. If you must vilify, condemn, and eternally disparage, why resign your position? And when you're outside, damn to your heart's content. So in other words, don't keep a job that all you're going to do is bitch about. But I pray you, so long as you are part of an institution, do not condemn it. Not that you'll injure the institution, not that, but when you disparage the concern of which you are a part, you disparage yourself. And don't forget, I forgot won't do in business. This literary trifle, A Message to Garcia, was written one evening after supper in a single hour. It was on the 22nd of February, 1899, Washington's birthday, and we were just going to press with the March Philistine. That was the uh, little magazine that Albert Hubbard printed once a month. The thing leaped hot from my heart, written after a trying day, when I had been endeavoring to train some rather delinquent villagers to abjure their comatose state and get radioactive. The immediate suggestion, though, came from a little argument over the teacups when my boy Bert suggested that Rowan was the real hero of the Cuban War. Remember, 1899. Rowan had gone alone and done the thing. That thing carried the message to Garcia came to me like a flash. Yes, the boy is right. The hero is a man who does his work, who carries the message to Garcia. I got up from the table and wrote a message to Garcia. I thought so little of it that we rented the magazine without a heading. The edition went out, and soon orders began to come for extra copies of the March Philistine, a dozen, fifty, a hundred. And when the American News Company ordered a thousand copies, I asked one of my helpers which article it was that stirred up this cosmic dust. It's the stuff about Garcia, he said. The next day, a telegram came from George Daniels of the New York Central Railroad, and it read thus, Give price on 100,000 Rowan article in pamphlet form. Empire State Express advertisement on back. Also, how soon can you ship? I replied, giving price, and stated we we could supply the pamphlets in two years. Our facilities were small, and 100,000 booklets looked like an awful undertaking. The result was that I gave Mr. Daniels permission to reprint the article in his own way. He issued it in booklet form in editions of half a million. Two or three of these half million lots were sent out by Mr. Daniels. In addition, the article was reprinted in over 200 magazines and newspapers. It has been translated into all written languages. At the time Mr. Daniels was distributing the message to Garcia, Prince Halikoff, director of Russian Railways, was in this country. He was the guest of the New York Central and made a tour of the country under the personal direction of Mr. Daniels. The prince saw the little book and was interested in it, more because Mr. Daniels was putting it out in such big numbers, probably, than otherwise. In any event, when he got home, he had the matter translated into Russian and a copy of the booklet given to every railroad employee in Russia. Other countries then took it up, and from Russia it passed into Germany, France, Spain, Turkey, Hindustan, and China. During the war between Russia and Japan, every Russian soldier who went to the front was given a copy of the message to Garcia. 
The Japanese, finding the booklets in possession of the Russian prisoners, concluded that it must be a good thing and accordingly translated it into Japanese. And on an order of the Mikado, that's the ruler of Japan, a copy was given to every man in the employ of the Japanese government, soldier or civilian. Over 40 million copies of a message to Garcia have been printed. This is said to be a larger circulation than any other literary venture ever attained during the lifetime of the author in all history, thanks to a series of lucky incidents. Albert Hubbard. Now, that's the preface. Then he gets into the word initiative. The world bestows its big prizes, both in money and in honors, for but one thing, and that is initiative. What is initiative? I'll tell you. It's doing the right thing without being told. But next to doing the thing without being told is to do it when you are told once. That is to say, carry the message to Garcia. Those who can carry a message get high honors, but their pay is not always in proportion. Next, there are those who never do a thing until they are told twice. Such get no honors and small pay. Then there are those who do the right thing only when necessity kicks them from behind, and these get indifference instead of honors and and a pittance for pay. This kind spends most of his time polishing a bench with a hard luck story. Then still lower down the scale than this, we have the fellow who will not do the right thing even when someone goes along to show him and stays to see that he does it. He's always out of a job and receives the contempt he deserves unless he happens to have a rich paw, in which case destiny patiently awaits around a corner with a billy club. To which class do you belong? Now here is a message to Garcia. And remember, this was written in 1899, and they were talking about the Cuban-American War in 1898. In all this Cuban business, there is one man stands out on the horizon of my memory, When war broke out between Spain and the United States, it was necessary to communicate quickly with the leader of the insurgents in Cuba. Garcia, who was the leader, was somewhere in the mountain vastness of Cuba. No one knew where. No mail nor telegraph message could reach him. The president must secure his cooperation and quickly. What to do? Someone said to the president, there's this fellow by the name of Rowan. He'll find Garcia for you if anybody can. Rowan was sent for and given a letter to be delivered to Garcia. How this fellow by the name of Rowan took the letter, sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart, in four days landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared in the jungle, and in three weeks came out the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot, and delivered his letter to Garcia are things I have no special desire now to tell in detail. The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and didn't ask, where is he? By the eternal there is a man whose form should be cast in deathless bronze and the statue placed in every college of this land. It's not book learning young men need, nor instruction about this and that, but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do that thing, carry a message to Garcia. General Garcia is dead now, but there are other Garcias. No man who has endeavored to carry out an enterprise where many hands were needed, but has been well-nigh appalled at times by the imbecility of the average man, the inability or unwillingness to concentrate on a thing and do it. Slipshod assistance, foolish inattention, dowdy indifference, and half-hearted work seem the rule, and no man succeeds unless by hook or crook or threat. He forces or bribes other men to assist him, 
Or mayhap God in his goodness performs a miracle and sends him an angel of light for an assistant. You, reader, put this matter to a test. You're sitting now in your office. Six clerks are within call. Summon anyone and make this request. Please look in the encyclopedia and make a brief memorandum for me concerning the life of Caraggio. Will the clerk quietly say, yes, sir, and go do the task? On your life, he will not. He'll look at you out of a fishy eye and ask one or more of the following questions. Who was he? Which encyclopedia? Where is the encyclopedia? Was I hired for that? Don't you mean Bismarck? What's the matter with Charlie doing it? Is he dead? Is there any hurry? Should I bring you the book and let you look it up yourself? What do you want to know for? And I'll lay you ten to one that after you've answered the questions and explained how to find the information and why you want it, the clerk will go off and get one of the other clerks to help him try to find Garcia and then come back and tell you there's no such man. Of course, I may, I may lose my bed, but according to the law, averages, I will not. Now, if you're wise, you'll not bother to explain to your assistant that Correggio is indexed under the C's, not the K's, but you'll smile sweetly and say, never mind, and go look it up yourself. And in this capacity for independent action, this moral stupidity, this infirmity of the will, this unwillingness to cheerfully catch hold and lift, are the things that put pure socialism so far into the future. He's talking about socialism in 1899. If men will not act for themselves, what will they do when the benefit of their effort is for all? A first mate with a knotted club seems necessary, and the dread of getting the bounce Saturday night holds many a worker to his place. (laughs) Advertise for a stenographer, and 9 out of 10 who apply can neither spell nor punctuate, and do not think it necessary to. Can such a one even write a letter to Garcia? You see that bookkeeper, said the foreman to me in a large factory. Yeah, what about him? Well, he's a fine accountant. But if I send him uptown on an errand, he might accomplish the errand all right. And on the other hand, might stop at four saloons on the way. And when he got to Main Street, would probably forget what he'd been sent for. Can such a man be entrusted to carry a message to Garcia? We've been recently hearing much maudlin sympathy expressed for the downtrodden denizen of the sweatshops and the homeless wanderer searching for honest employment, and with it all, often go many hard words for the men in power. Nothing is said about the employer who grows old before his time in a vain attempt to get frowsy ne'er-do-wells to do intelligent work, and his long patient striving with help that does nothing but loaf when his back is turned. In every store and factory, there's a constant weeding out process going on. The employer is constantly sending away help that have shown their incapacity to further the interests of the business, and always others are being taken on. No matter how good times are, this sorting continues. Only if times are hard and work is scarce, the sorting is done finer, but out and forever out, the incompetent and unworthy go. It is the survival of the fittest. Self-interest prompts every employer to keep the best those who can carry a message to Garcia. I know one man of really brilliant parts who has not the ability to manage a business of his own, and yet he was absolutely worthless to anyone else because he carries with him constantly the insane suspicion that his employer is oppressing or intending to oppress him. He cannot give orders, and he will not receive them. Should a message be given to him to take to Garcia, his answer would probably be, take it yourself. Tonight this man walks the streets looking for work, the wind whisting through his threadbare coat. No one who knows him dare employ him, for he is a regular firebrand of discontent. 
He is impervious to reason, and the only thing that can impress him is the toe of a thick-soled size 9 boot. Of course, I know that one so morally deformed is no less to be pitied than a physical cripple. But in our pitying, let us drop a tear or two for the men who are striving to carry on a great enterprise, whose working hours are not limited by the whistle, and whose hair is fast turning white through the struggle to hold in line dowdy indifference, slipshod imbecility, and the heartless ingratitude which, but for their enterprise, they would be both hungry and homeless. Have I put the matter too strongly? Possibly I have, but when all the world has gone a-slumming, I wish to speak a word of sympathy for the man who succeeds, the man who, against great odds, has directed the efforts of others, and having succeeded, finds there's nothing in it, nothing but bare board and clothes. I've carried a dinner pail and worked for a day's wages, and I have also been an employer of labor, and I know there is something to be said on both sides. There is no excellence, par se, in poverty. Rags are no recommendation, and... All employers are not rapacious and high-handed any more than all poor men are virtuous. My heart goes out to the man who does his work when the boss is away, as well as when he is at home, and the man who, when given a letter for Garcia, quietly takes the missive, without asking any idiotic questions, and with no lurking intention of chucking it into the nearest sewer, or of doing aught else but deliver it, never gets laid off, nor has to go on a strike for higher wages." Civilization is one long, anxious search for just such individuals. Anything such a man asks shall be granted. His kind is so rare that no employer can afford to let him go. He's wanted in every city, town, and village, in every office, shop, store, and factory. The world cries out for such. He is needed and needed badly, this, this man who can carry a message to Garcia. Every time I hear the message to Garcia, every time I read it, it chokes me up. It brings a tear to my eye because it reminds me of what Americans used to be. To this day, I meet people who are complaining because they don't have a good job. They have a job, but they hate it. I don't understand why they don't just quit. It's probably because they have no initiative. I've hired people who, if I don't yell at them and say, get off your ass and get your work done, they don't ever get done. And it shames me that I have to be part of anything like that. The sad thing is it doesn't shame the people who can't carry a message to Garcia. In fact, I'm the bad guy, and employers like me are the bad guy when we require our employees to actually function without a whip and chair. Now, maybe this is overly dramatized, but you can see the same thing in all government employees. They barely do their job. Why? Because they're so ensconced in the swamp that they don't need to worry about it because they, they can't get fired. And Albert Hubbard warned about socialism 120 years ago. People were a lot more educated then than they are now because they had to be. That's about it. Oh, I'm sure I've got uh, many other things I could talk to you about on this subject, but the basic line is this. You are your own worst enemy. You are your own best friend. And you are the one person who can get you off your ass and get you into life succeeding. You can do it. You can't do it blindly, and you can't do it just by mumbling the same mantras over and over and over again. You have to decide what you're going to do and do it. 
years ago, I saw a seafood business that was floundering. I gave the salesperson my card and said, tell your, uh, your, your owner that if he wants this to succeed, uh, give me a call. I didn't even have a job at the time. I knew nothing about seafood. But I knew I had initiative and I knew I had push. And I knew that I could add two plus two and come out four. Two weeks later, the guy calls me, put me to work. Within two years, his company went from making 50000 profit a year to uh, $2.3 million profit in a year. So you can do it. If a six foot two, 250 pound, fat, ball headed guy can do it, you can do it. Of course, I haven't been all, always bald or fat. But there are there is nothing out there you can't do if you decide you're going to do it. I've had many people tell me over the years. This is not just currently. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, there's no work out where I am, so um, I'm going to come out where you are. Boom, they come out, they get a job, everything works fine. Now, they're afraid. They're afraid to let go of the hand that's, that's keeping them standing upright. And they're afraid to go out on their own initiative and go for it. I've done it many times. It's, and I find, it, I find it odd that everybody's not like me. At one time in my life, everything I owned sat in the back seat of a 71 station wagon, Buick station wagon. That's it. And I drove to Los Angeles. I, and when I say everything, I mean I had a teapot with $250 of quarters in it. And that's it. And some clothes and a sleeping bag. Within a week of being in Los Angeles, I was running a rooming house and making 5000 a week selling tickets to the policeman's ball. Don't let things get you down. Because you can change everything. There's a lot of crap happening. There's going to be a lot of crap more happening uh, to you, to me, to this planet, to this country, to your city. You can become a victim. You can become somebody who's always, always failing and bitch and moan about it's, it's, it's somebody else's fault. It's the white man's fault. It's the black man's fault. It's the boss's fault. It's the, uh, it's the uh, chemtrails fault. It's, it's, um, um, it's the food I eat. It's, it's my wife. It's my husband. It's the dog. It's the dirt. It's cigarettes. It's the guns. It's the cars. You can blame, like the communists do, inanimate objects. Or you can actually look in the mirror and say, what do I want? And then go for it. If you want to be a computer design quality control engineer, well, there's certain things you got to learn first. And then once you learn them, go for it. Anyway, if you need anything from Survival Enterprises, survivalenterprises.com, se1.us, Samuel Edwards, numeral1.us. Go look there, poke around. I will be revamping the whole website. But uh, just remember what I said. And that's my job. My job is to arm you with whatever is necessary for your survival. It could be guns. It could be information. It could be pep talk. It could be a number 10 boot in your butt. Whatever's needed. Call us 800-753-1981. 800-753-1981. We'll either answer the phone or not. So we got ham radios, shortwave radios. We've got Mountain House food coming. And we're going to have Dalton the original Dalton water purifier systems in uh, next week. This is the Armchair Survivalist signing off. Keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground and pay attention.